Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, dozens of movies spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely reported. This is This Is Spinal Tap. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like This Is Spinal Tap, which we're going to be talking about today. That's right. But before we do that... Ian, how are you doing this week? I am fine. I'm sure I'd feel worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation, as I told filmmaker Marty DeBerge in the lobby of the Burbank Hilton. But in reality, I'm hanging in there. You know what? I'm always hanging on a string, just getting by. But it's pod night, and we got an all-time great movie tonight. We got a really fun funny guest. And so as usual, I am excited. I am in my best mood of the week. How about you? Ian dropping the spinal tap bits early in case you were wondering right away for uh, for fans of this movie. We obviously are. I am doing great. Mowed my lawn. So that's always a good feeling. I don't have to worry about that for a month now. My neighbors hate me because I mow my lawn <laughs> once a month. But Yeah, that's a long shaggy lawn going on. You know what? That's their fucking problem. Let's get into it, man. Let's introduce our guest because I'm really excited. Yes. He is a comedian, writer, podcaster. He's co-host of the great podcast, Death and Friends with our friend Nash Flynn. Right. And a magician. It's Angel Garcia. Yay. Angel. Yay. Well, Yay. Did I forget anything, Angel? Did I forget uh, any of your uh, you did. credits? You did. A local Mexican sweetbread. Oh, I thought that was a, a private thing between us. No. I didn't know if you wanted that said on the air. Okay. Local Mexican <laughs> sweetbread, Angel Garcia. Mm-hmm. So Angel, what's new? How you doing? I'm doing well for the most part. Ooh, man. I mean, where do I start? It was a cold November night when I was born. No, I'm, I'm good for the most part. Time of recording the week's almost over and I'm very excited to sleep in. Yes. And uh, yeah, we're vibing, man. The vibes are immaculate. And I, any chance to watch Spinal Tap is a good week. Yeah, so. you reached out. I, I wanted to have you on the pod and you were very enthusiastic about Spinal Tap. So what is your relationship with this movie? When did you first see it and how has it evolved over the years for you? I was a young boy in Houston, Texas when I first saw Spinal Tap. Let's see here. I think I think I was like 11. Okay. I really should have oh. been watching it. Yeah. I specifically remember this. It was in our shitty apartment and a Sunday on regular TV that is in cable is kind of boring, but like there was mm-hmm. nothing sure. else to do for whatever reason. And I think it was like channel 20, which was back in the day, UPN and then like my network TV, just kind of shady channels, but the not great ones. It was showing Spinal Tap at 11 a.m. Whoa. I mean, that's great weekend uh, programming. Yeah. And yeah. I was just like, what the hell is this? And like at the time, I'm starting to get into music and stuff. So I was like, okay. And I was like, oh, this is a good band. Oh, it's a documentary on a band. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and it was the funniest set of shit an 11 year old could ever see. <laughs> but it, are you like, sure it, you weren't just 10, but turned up one more? Ah. Uh, uh, now, when you watched it at 11, did you know it was a fake band? Because lots of rock stars were actually fooled by this documentary. So here's the other part, right? 11 was a big year for me. It's my lucky number, but it's also like the year I started staying up late to watch Conan. Oh, okay. And so like, I, I think Harry Shear was on and I was like, that's the guy from Spinal Tap. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. And then he was like, so, in the flesh. yeah. And then like, so you've been doing the Simpsons. I used to write for the Simpsons. And like, Conan used to write for the Simpsons? Harry Shear's Homer? What is happening? And like, just like my little mind got blown. It was pre-internet and Wikipedia was a thing. And I looked up the movie and I was like, mockumentary, what is this? And then I kind of realized like, oh, Oh, it's fake. But I also remember, I think a few years later, late night with Jimmy 
Jimmy Fallon, Spinal Tap did a like a performance and yeah. it was just their classic shenanigans of like, yeah, we have this new CD set and it's like a whole fucking pop-up book thing. And I was just like, the commitment to these bits by these yeah. men are insane. And I, just, I fell in love with them. Also, the jams are great. Right. So good. You have to wonder how fake is it really? Because sure, it's a made up band, but the effort they put into their music and their performances is not fake. It's like calling professional wrestling fake. Sure, it's choreographed and predetermined, but it still is a lot of work. Ooh, you're talking to the right guy here. I'm a fellow wrestling fan. A gigantic one, sir. There's a, for the listeners can't see, I have a suplex apparel flag behind me. Oh, hell yeah. I fucking love wrestling. Before we get off an, a road we can't turn back like, from. It's my shit. I used to write for WrestleZone.com for the long I remember WrestleZone. Oh, yeah, cool. it's still around. I used to write for them. If you go to my Twitter, I don't know if that link is still live anymore, but there's a preview of me doing magic for a bunch of wrestlers. All right. <laughs> Spinal Tap, so, here we go. Before we get into Spinal Tap, we like to talk about something we all watched that had nothing to do with the podcast. So, Ian, did you watch anything this week you wanted to talk about? I watched something that was coincidentally sort of contemporaneous to Spinal Tap. I watched a mm-hmm. little movie called Ron from 1985 by a guy named Akira Kurosawa, acclaimed as one of the great directors of all time. Indeed. I am not the kind of movie buff who knows my shit about old directors, but somebody that like, oh, I, maybe I should learn. I co-host a movie podcast. Maybe it's time. And uh, this is a cool movie. It's highly stylized because it's based off of King Lear. So the tone is Shakespearean. The drama is told in these big giant strokes, both in the actual content and just in the style, the deliveries, the look of the people. The king who kind of goes nuts looks insane. Like in every scene that he comes back on, he looks more and more insane. So it's like visually really interesting. Really fun watch. I mean, I can't analyze it and give you any deep stuff, but like it's- Mm, Try. (laughs) Give us a thousand words. Yeah, Actually, 20 words or less, blow my socks off or I leave this podcast right now. Okay. The Fool <laughs> was funny and I liked him. I think that counts. Angel Socks. Goddamn genius. Uh, I almost did the walk hard bit where I was like, there's literally nothing you can do. Nothing <laughs> you can play that will change my mind right now. You have shaken my faith. In the Ian Dukes. Yes. Yeah, Kurosawa was a rich vein to mine. I haven't dug into him nearly as much as I should, but that's an exciting journey to go on if you're going to try to go back through his catalog. Yeah, I started at the back end because what the hell do I know? I started in 1985 and like he was, I think he might have lost his vision, like literally been blind at this point. I don't know. I don't need too much. He directed a few movies after that too. He directed three more after Ron. Dreams, Rhapsody in August and Matadayo. I don't know if I pronounced that last one right. But that's the thing about him where it's one of those things where you're like, of course he wasn't blind, but part of you's like, what if he was? Like, right. <laughs> Holy shit, but what if he was though? It's a whole Beethoven thing going on. Yeah, it just adds to his mystique as a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, he can just do magic shit. I would believe almost anything about him because he's just got this air of mystery and just overall competency. Yeah. What about you, Angel? I just, uh, I literally, like five minutes before getting on this with you, I finished Suicide Squad, the new the one. Wow. Suicide Squad. The Suicide Squad. The Suicide, Suicide Squad. Squad. Right. L Suicide Squad. Can we get some thoughts on it? Now, just for listeners, we're recording this. Suicide Squad just came out. So I'm literally like, I watched it and then I was like, oh shit. And I ran to my room and I put my headphones up. Like my pants were blown off me. It was great. It was really good. And I was just like, you're telling me we could have had DC movies like this this whole time? You fucking assholes. Right. <laughs> like that kind of thing. I'm like, oh, right. When you let a well-known and trusted creative just do whatever the fuck they want, they kind of come out with gold. Yeah. And, and it's so good. Every character, and there's a lot of them, got their time to shine and they all had bits 
hits and callbacks. And I only have one issue with the movie, and that is a character that I love didn't make it mm. because it's the Suicide Squad movie. Bound to happen, yeah. <laughs> as long but, as if it's King Shark, I'm going to cry. But I don't I do not know. But it's a really great movie. It's so good. In my head, I'm like, I need James Gunn to just do DC because this is great. And like the problem with DC versus Marvel is the lows of DC are much lower than the lows of Marvel. But the highs have a chance to be much higher. Yeah, the lows of Marvel still sell toys. Right. But that's because they're all kind of like homogenous to a degree. Yeah, exactly. Which is not great. Right. It's like, yeah, it's milk. But it's fine because you like milk and you drink and it. You need it for your bones. We drank it straight from the teat of Robert Downey Jr. It was one time. Yeah, no, it's just one of those deals where it's like when it's real high, it's like, yeah, this is the best goddamn drink you've ever had in your life. Like that life changing. Like, you remember the first time you've ever had your favorite drink? Yes, strawberry Nesquik. There you go. Ooh. It's that kind of level of like, oh my God. Oh. Like my favorite drink to get at a restaurant is like the strawberry lemonade at a Korean barbecue spot where I'm like, however this goes, I'm getting this lemonade and it's going to change my life. They should put that on the Suicide Squad poster. Like this is like strawberry lemonade at a Korean barbecue joint. Exactly. Angel Garcia. <laughs> Angel Garcia. And then be like, what the fuck is Angel Garcia? Also, strawberry lemonade at a barbecue. I never thought of that. Like yeah, it'll I'm definitely gonna... make you go, who's that guy? But also like, oh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, he's onto something here. It'll cut through the saltiness of everything. I've got a new release to talk about as well. I got to the theater this weekend uh, for only the second time post mm. I almost say post COVID because it's obviously still going on but and I checked out The Green Knight oh my god yeah. that's so sick how Fucking, was it it rules it's so good it looks really? so good it's trippy it's sad it's funny at times Dev Patel is just killer and there's not like it's almost a plotless movie to a degree if you know the basic beats of the story you right. kind of know where they're doing but they kind of fill in the blanks because the story's pretty short originally the poem it's based on yeah so. it's it's only a handful of stanzas it's nothing crazy yeah so they fill in a lot of the blanks you can draw conclusions about maybe he was tested in certain ways on the way so is reddit correct when it's like yeah half the movie is just him on a carriage singing 500 miles over and over like, yeah <laughs> that was a weird choice uh by David like it's Lowry. just him on a horse is like when i'll wake up I know I'm going to be. No, yeah, he, exactly. <laughs> I, David Lowry must have had some deal with the Proclaimers where he could use that song free mm-hmm. of charge because he was like, we can't afford a score. The budget's real low. We're just going to use this. There's one person that's like, really? They did that? Like, right. like, I guess I got to watch this movie. <laughs> that's me. I'm the one saying that right <laughs> now. Fucking spoilers. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> no, doing bits, baby. Highly recommend it. Just a really trippy. It, it is not what the trailer would lead you to believe. But it is so much more and better than that in the trailer. Really? Because that trailer, I'm like, yo, I I need to watch this. The trailer looked good, but it's a different type of movie than it indicates. But it's so good. Um, So would you say the marketing is misleading on the film? I don't know how you market what the movie really is. Wow, this is so (laughs) fascinating. I'm avoiding all the stuff as I like to do. And a movie where I think I might really like it and want to see it, I'll even dodge the trailers. I just don't want to know anything about it. But this is going to test me to like out till it hits streaming. The Green Knight, it's about a day where global warming takes mm-hmm. over fully okay. and the nighttime, it's no longer dark black, it's green. Oh, it's yeah. actually a stealthy reboot mm. of the Green Lantern franchise. Yes. Makes sense. Green yeah, Lantern. Exactly. I think it's getting a short uh, theatrical window though. It'll probably be out on streaming by the time this comes out. I think it's doing like the 30 days. Yeah. So okay. I figure it's got to be a short window. So I'm going to hold mm-hmm. out. I'm, I'm not going to listen to this podcast in case there were spoilers on it. <laughs> right. Don't uh, listen back just in yeah. case. Just in case. So that brings us to this week's movie, Spinal Tap. So we already kind of got Angel's background with the movie and how he 
came to know it. I understand, Ian, though, you're a big fan, too. As a young man, this movie was really important to me, really huge in my life. As a kid, I was really into comedy that had English accents in it. We had Monty Python's Flying Circus came on the local PBS. Everybody has that phase, I think. Yeah. Like, if you're into comedy, you have that phase of a few years where you're just like, you haven't seen the IT crowd. Right. <laughs> Jimmy Carr, exactly. all those guys. Yeah, for me, that was Flying Circus. This was in reruns. I'm not that old, but like this. Was- I was going to say, I was like, did you see that shit live? Holy shit. <laughs> but yeah, it was, and it was on PBS at Weird Hours. So you really had to be the kind of fan that like hunted it down to see some of this shit because you couldn't even go and get it. There was no internet. And I was also in a rock band in high school with my best friends. And we were earnest fans oh, of Zeppelin and all this stuff, like the stuff that this movie goes after. And so at the time I could quote almost every line in the movie. And that's just how we talked to each other, my group of best buddies. And then I took a, like a long break. I don't know, 20 years since I last seen this movie. And wow. it was so cool coming back to it this week. What a drug. Yeah, like it's as good as I remembered or better. It's so wonderful. And it was just really cool to come home to. Wait, Ian, what did you play? I played drums uh, in the first iteration of the band. And then later on, I got on the bass so I could get out from the back of the stage. So you were in constant fear of spontaneously combusting. I had to, I lived through that until I finally got out of that <laughs> dangerous hot seat. Right. Didn't want to drown on somebody else's vomit. Ian is our musical mastermind. He, he does, he did the theme song, obviously. And then he makes a brand new song for every episode. I don't know if we talk about this enough. I'm a little monologue I do. Mm-hmm. There's a new song that plays under every monologue that Ian makes yeah. to match the tone of the movie. When the guy's like, bruh, 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 to match right. a bit. <laughs> yeah. That's also Ian. That's also Ian. <laughs> Dumb Voices is also made. He, yeah. he does a lot for Th- it. They're just schnitzel from Chowder. Rada, rada, rada. Speaking of my monologue, I guess it's kind of that time where we get into it, right? Make it happen, baby. Let's hear how this thing happened. All right, so... In 1967, Michael McKean and Christopher Guest met while attending college in New York City and began playing music together. Looked at each other and said, no, 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 well, join up. The two would stay in touch and occasionally collaborate until 1978, when they were working on a sketch comedy show creatively called The TV Show, with Rob Reiner and Harry Shearer. One of the sketches featured a parodied rock band called Spinal Tap, and through the sketch's development, Guest and McKean continued to flesh out their characters. Reiner was impressed and procured $60,000 from Marble Arch Productions to write a screenplay, a feature-length film about Spinal Tap, but this was quickly abandoned in favor of a more improvised approach. I'll tell you what we're going to have to do. Jazz Odyssey. Filmed in Los Angeles County over about five weeks in 1982, the film was a send-up of popular rockumentaries like Don't Look Back, The Song Remains the Same, and The Last Waltz. Reiner shot over 100 hours of footage for the movie, but was able to edit it down to an 82-minute theatrical cut that would be released on March 2nd, 1984. An immediate hit with critics, the film received excellent reviews but was not widely seen by audiences, eventually pulling in about $4.7 million in its entire theatrical run. I just think that the... Uh their appeal is becoming more selective. Its release on home video would lead to much more widespread acclaim from audiences, becoming a true cult classic as it is now considered one of the best comedies of all time. Incredibly. No doubt. Yeah, it permeates the culture in such a way where even if you've never seen Spinal Tap, you know what like turn it up to 11 means. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just one of those evergreen things where it's just like, yeah, it's fucking amazing. And like, like rock was not even at its most ridiculous point when the movie was made. So it the definitely stuff it's, foreshadowed it's doing, it though. Yeah, it did. It really like predicted how crazy things would get mm-hmm. in, in an interesting way because 
rock musicians are famously well-adjusted and can mm-hmm. take a joke at their expense. So well, they, they all have armadillos in their pants. So they gotta- That's right. Yeah, it gives you a sense of confidence going mm-hmm. out on stage. Not a cucumber wrapped in aluminum foil. Oh my oh. God. I remember <laughs> losing <laughs> my whole body to that bit. Because like it, it's just played so genuine. He's like, oh, it must be Mazippa. And then like just the panic in his face and he's just like, fuck it. And oh, yeah. he takes it off. And oh, I remember my exact reaction. I was like, what? What has happened? He, he plays it beautifully. And then like just her reaction look. Is, it's such a natural reaction yeah. from the security guards. Like it's so well played. It really yeah. feels mm-hmm. like a documentary. I mean, because you know, so much of it is improvised. I wonder how much they knew. Yeah. According to the stories they tell, they're like, there's a few things that we planned out, like the 11 thing where you're like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if these went to 11? Oh, yeah, cool. And they'll set that up. But like the rest of it's improvised. Like they'll come up with a premise. And I guess what happened is like, oh, there's a premise here. They're going through security at an And they hired the people, but they don't tell them what's going to happen. They're like, just do what you would normally do. And that's how you get that natural kind of out of the extras. Exactly. They keep finding excuses to release more and more of the footage they shot, but didn't use. There's all kinds of bonus materials. I mean, there's a hundred hours of this shit. Yeah. There's follow-up movies they made almost entirely just out of stuff they didn't use. Yeah. It's it's bonkers and it's so good. And it has my favorite joke. And like screen break of all time. It's the review scene where he's talking about oh, the reviews. Oh, yeah. That's nitpicking, isn't it? <laughs> it's really only a two word review for Shark Sandwich. It's a shit sandwich. This place is like, like it's <laughs> yeah. in my head, I'm like, clearly that was like the best take they can get out of that. Joke. Right. Yeah. You know, Reiner didn't prepare them. They're for like, that wait a second. They can't write that. Like, you can tell they're both, they're all <laughs> totally broke. Real, yeah, and they're yeah. trying not to fucking do it. And they probably were like, let's take it again. And then found that, like, okay, the first one's the best one still. So, yeah, this movie is so good. I just want to set the stage at the top like different episodes of this podcast take a different shape because sometimes the movie sucks and we razz on it for a Mm -hmm. while sometimes (laughs) yeah you guys fucking destroyed (laughs) lady in the water did not like that (laughs) movie you You, y'all we had a good time with that y'all took a shit in the pool on lady (laughs) we're gonna get a letter from m night's lawyers but when you have a movie this good it's like okay well what are we here to do we're We're actually like here to try to like quote it laugh, have a good time. And actually I get more nervous in episodes like this because I'm like, I can't do it justice. This movie is too good. I'm going to mess up the quotes. I'm going to forget the best lines. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know what? This movie is so good. I'm just going to chill because it can speak for itself. I don't have to say anything. Mm -hmm. I like how you separated a few bits that you really love. Yeah. Because I mean- You got to pick and choose. There's too many. Yeah. Oh God. Such a fine line between stupid and clever. Uh, I think- Harry Shear, or one of the three said they're like, actually, I think you just described the movie perfectly in that one line. Fine line, Fine between, line stupid between stupid and clever. Yeah. The best part of that lobby scene is like, well, I'd love to hang out, but we have to wait in the lobby for the limo. <laughs> we, have to, <laughs> we have to go sit and wait in the lobby. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> so many, there's like, there's no scene that we could come up with that you couldn't quote at least two to three lines. Hilarious. Yeah, it's timeless that, it's that good. My favorite movie of all time tends to fluctuate a lot, just depending right. on how sad I am and whatever. Because sure. you know, like when I'm really depressed, I'm like, Stranger Than Fiction is the greatest film of all time. Just because it's the right amount of depressed. But like, I think for really, it's like Hot Fuzz. Oh, great one. Just because the amount of jokes per frame and like throwaway bits are just so plentiful. Mm -hmm. Like just like little lines that you were like, did nobody just catch that gold that came out of this person's mouth? And I think that love of bits like that came from Spinal Tap. Because the amount of them in this fucking movie is every other line, I think. I would be... Downright shocked if Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and Edgar Wright aren't huge Spinal Tap fans. Because, uh, 100%. Yeah, that just sensibility like, is totally in their work. My favorite scene from Hot Fuzz is when he's in the pub the first time and he notices it's all the kids. And it's like a half second. It's a wide shot of all the kids in the pub. And the detail that people don't catch is there are straws in every single 
pint glass. And I remember seeing it like the fifth time and I was like, wait a second, are you fucking shitting me right now? And then there's like the close-up shots and they're focusing on like, oh, look at our young faces. I'm like, is no one seeing the fucking straws in these beer glasses? <laughs> they're kids, Maybe. obviously. They're bendy too. That's the best part. Oh, like wacky straws. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so like this movie is just so filled with them. It's insane. Yeah. Just yeah, layers. I mean, Edgar Wright is a maniac because he crafted all that stuff. He puts such a high density of comedic moments in every scene is super satisfying always really funny and really exciting you can't take your eyes off the screen this movie did it a different way like they did it the improvisers way they, they improvised a ton of shit as we said they had dozens of hours of footage and then they just whittled it down and it's a victory for the quantity is quality theory of comedy which says just write a ton of shit and 10 percent of it might be good mm -hmm. if you're willing to work that hard and bring it down to that just distill it to the best stuff and this movie is like that it hits so hard mm -hmm. it's just wall to wall mm -hmm. so good i can't believe i fucked up with my movie that i watched watched in preparation for this because I just watched Dig last night, which would have been a perfect lead into this. You guys familiar no. with the movie Dig? Dig, no. Dig, About Dig. the Brian Jonestown massacre and the Dandy Warhols, which were no. two like hipster indie bands kind of rivals coming up on the scene in like the mid to late nineties. But the lead singer of the Brian Jonestown massacre, who I guarantee has songs you've heard and you just probably don't know mm -hmm. who it's from. Anton Newcomb has so many unintentional spinal tap lines in that movie. He has <laughs> such like delusions of grandeur that I think it would have been a really nice. I mean, that's why I watched it. Cause I was looking back through like old rockumentaries and preparation for this. And this yeah. was the first time I saw dig, but he, mm -hmm. he is like David St. Hubbins, but he's not in on the joke. It was just very interesting double feature with this one, but that's just a little on the side if anybody's interested in watching rock stars make a fool of themselves. Yeah, oh, we yeah. talked about it in, in Walk Hard that like Walk Hard skewered the music biopic movie industry so hard that the filmmakers had to stop doing those stupid tropes because mm. they had been roasted for it. They'd been shamed. <laughs> yeah. But like Spinal Tap skewered musicians, but they can't stop themselves. They're always going to be that. They were that before and they kept being that way after. What I realize is because you guys have covered all the evergreen amazing music ones so far. And I'm like, why is it that all the music mockumentary, they're all loved, but they don't make money. Like, right. ever. Yeah. They never make money, but God, everybody loves them. And I think it's because these movies are like, you know, the term a comedian's comedian. Yes. Like, like they're amazing and they draw, but at the end of the day, they won't make it because they're for like that specific crowd. I yes. feel like these movies fall under that. Right. If you like smart, clever shit, it's in this movie. There's such a specificity to the humor. Yeah. <laughs> but when a movie is bad, even like the worst one of these is still better than whatever garbage Hollywood will give you. Right. right. I would watch yeah. the worst mockumentary over uh, The Song Remains the Same. We'll get into how much I hate that. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's so funny you mentioned because I realized it's always been the episodes where you have guests and we let the guests pick the movie. We've done mm -hmm. in reverse chronological order. Pop star. Walk yeah. hard <laughs> yeah, and now Spinal exactly. Tap. It's like three yeah. three eras yeah. of the mockumentary. Yeah, and they're all movies of their eras too. Even though Walk Hard and Popstar were close to each other, they were in such a it's such a snapshot of that time. Yeah. Right. And yeah, like, about even 10 the years big win, even the big wind is a snapshot of that early 2000s indie scene in a way. And so you mean like, a, a mighty wind? A mighty wind. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, a mighty wind. A big wind is what happened earlier to me after Nachos. A mighty wind. You know what I'm saying? Like it's all just so hyper focused on like certain aspects of music at the time, and it's so good. Even though Walk Hard was definitely more broad. But it definitely nailed something at the zeitgeist when it comes to the music industry at the time. So Yeah, because yeah. those movies are so tropey. Even if they're making jokes about a specific scene in a movie you haven't seen, you <laughs> still recognize it because a version of that scene will have been in every movie like that. So you never feel lost. You always feel safe.
All right, Ian, do you want to walk us through the story such as it is of this movie? (laughs) Let's jump right into it. Aging British rock band Spinal Tap is about to drop a new album called Smell the Glove. And to promote it, they're setting out on their first American tour in years. But the tour gets off to a slow start with canceled shows and no copies of the album to be found. Then the record company reveals that they haven't released the record due to its controversial cover art. Amidst all the bad news, lead guitarist David St. Hubbins, played by Michael McKeon, is thrilled to find out his girlfriend Janine will be joining him on the tour. But lead guitarist Nigel Tufnell, played by Christopher Guest, is not so pleased to have Janine around. What a great synopsis of the movie. I was like, how are you going to be able to break this down? I was like, no, he, he nailed it. It's not a real plotty movie. Yeah, there's not a lot of plot, but there's a cool core that thankfully I like it when it's actually kind of simple to sum up. There's some movies that have a thousand plot points and I got to try to figure out. What like Lady in the Water. And then, yeah, then the glip <laughs> yeah. glorps come and they do the shittily boo on the flafloigan. Like, all right. None of that. And here. it's all Just... to set up a joke about the man's pajimbus. You're like, all right, dude. enough jimbus jokes. We open with a young Rob Ryan which I found very like disturbing for some reason. Yeah, you're like, Rob without wrinkles is odd. He's always <laughs> been 63 in my mind. I like him in this phase. As I was reflecting on what the movie meant to me, I'm like, oh, I loved all these guys. I'm like, did I live my life like David St. Hubbins or Nigel Tufnell? I'm like, no, I think I became Marty DeBerge. That's like, very I hear it. I think if you're going to be, my- if you're going to be any of them, Marty's the Marty's the person to be, I think. <laughs> yeah. He seems, he seems happy and simple. He's sad. I will say though, I've seen Rob Reiner in other movies when I was younger, and it was weird for me to see him not exactly Exasperated with his arms. Right. Not him like, ha! Ah! Like, like, that's still I'm his like, like comedic persona. That's day. still like, his new thing. Girl, but like in a movie where he's calm more, even when he's upset, he's like, I just, I can't believe it. And you're like, I can't believe what's happening right now. Like, you're right. not yelling. When is Rob going <laughs> to lose his shit or Marty? Yeah, Marty but By the way, the trailer for the movie was uh-huh. just Marty's like, here's a thing that we think is educational. It's about cheese. And it like, oh, yeah. yeah. And it totally called out like, and then the mass suicide occurs in Scandinavia. And I was like, holy shit. Did he just call out Midsummer? Fucking 40 years before <laughs> yeah. it actually happened. Is this a thing? Like there's a big summer festival around something and then everyone dies. It is a real thing. It does happen in Norway, Finland. One of those shit. places. Just the not, upper- with less like less stuffing into a bear being lit right. on fire. Right. Although if Florence Pugh wanted to do that, I'd be game. Yeah, you know, Florence Pugh, what a trajectory for a, for a career. She's crushing it, just carrying Zach Braff on her tiny little back. She was amazing, and she was also great in Black Widow. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Little Women. Oh. She was probably the littlest woman, I think. So, all right, tangent over, back to the movie. So, I mean, there's just so many comedy ringers throughout this movie, but like early on in their careers too, so you could theoretically see how an audience might be fooled into thinking this is a real band. But just in this first section of the movie, you've got Fran Drescher, Billy Crystal, Dana Carvey, Bruno Kirby, Ed Begley Jr. In a non-speaking There's role. There's like such a crazy lineup. And just as, what was his name? He had a great name as the drummer. God, there's so many good drummer names. <laughs> I know. So good. They just had a lot of fun with the drummer names in this movie because yeah. there's so Stumpy. many of them to go around. Stumpy. John Stumpy. It was Keeps. Stumpy. <laughs> Stumpy. And then we have Peter James Bond later. That's my favorite one. Yeah, Peter James <laughs> Bond is like such a good name. Yeah, like, and these people just in these, like, I guess uh, Fran Drescher as Bobby has, has a pretty big role. Size yeah, she, she drives a big section. So you gotta remember, I was 11 and like, I was a young kid. So when I saw this movie and I was like, is that the nanny? Right. <laughs> Cause she's not doing that like over the top voice in this movie either. She's no, talking I mean, she has like her accent, but voice. she's not like doing the whole thing. Exactly. And like, um, and the crazy part is like just all the people. I was like, I know that guy. Hey, I know that guy. Yeah, Billy yeah. Crystal as a mime. I was like, I know. What a random favorite ass. Just the one line, yeah. I wish Billy Crystal would be a mime more these days. <laughs> don't talk back. It Come just, on, mime is money. Mime yeah. is money. And Dana, yeah. I don't think Dana Carvey gets a single line in, right? No, he's like he's, totally he's just hemming it up as a mime. I think he goes up it, 
one time as like Billy yeah. Crystal is. <laughs> that's how he got his sag wage, actually. He went, oh, <laughs> right. and that's a spoken line. <laughs> he had to stammer a little bit just to get paid. But like they say, Bruno Kirby in this, as we already started to talk about, the script was improvised. They told him where the scene starts and where it's supposed to end. And like his classic line, are you reading Yes, I Can by Sammy Davis Jr.? They should call that book Yes, I Can. Frank Sinatra says it, I can because he called the shots for all those guys. Like that was Bruno Kirby. He wrote that shit. Like he yes, on the spot. The- it's funny because in my head, I'm like, I think he actually believes that about Sammy Davis Jr. Like, it didn't it feel just, authentic. Right? Like, he's like, yeah. this is just a fucking fad. And in my head, I'm like, that man believes that shit. <laughs> Italian guy in New York in the 80s. Like, yeah, he definitely had some real attachment to Sinatra. <laughs> Come over here. I'm going to touch your face when I talk to you. Exactly. Um, the roll slowly rolling up the partition as they're talking is just such like a good deadpan bit of comedy. Nigel's face. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And it's, it's become tropey at this point now, but I right. feel like Spinal Tap is one of the first places Definitely. to really use it for comedic effect. Fucking limeys. Yeah. yeah. Like, Marty no, is- yeah, guys. Yeah, absolutely. You fucking limey pieces of shit. And then poor Marty is stuck up front with them. Yeah. yeah. That the- awkwardness is great. What a great part. Because it's the camera's just on him, and then it like zooms out a little bit, and Marty just pops in. He's like, "So when you say that, you're like, oh shit, he's there. That's right." I got to talk about the sandwich scene backstage when Nigel is having mm. a little bit of a catastrophe with his bread is too small. Oh my and god, he's folding the bread. That and is like, one no. of the, yeah. And then he's like, stop folding the bread. He's like, well, no, once you right. fold this, you got folded. He's like, no, it. stop folding breaking. the bread. Ian playing like quiet exasperation is like trying, not you, Ian. Yes. Dude. No, that's uh, <laughs> Ian, the manager. Ian Faith. Ian Faith. Ian is maybe responsible for my favorite joke in the entire movie, which is just that short montage of him when he's like, oh yeah, having a cricket bat, you know, it comes in handy. In the oh world yeah. World. He's just fucking and it's that brief up. montage of just hitting <laughs> shit with his cricket bat. But it doesn't seem like there's any kind of conflict going on when he does it. He's just like got a cricket bat. What else is he going to do with it? He's just smashing shit. It's definitely one of those things where they definitely film the things of them partying. And right. someone's like, woo, do it. And he's like, all right. And then they just splice it all together. It's just such a stupid <laughs> Ian has some of the best lines in the whole thing, though, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fuck yeah. the napkin. I mean, it's a fine line to walk playing a manager like that, especially when you're improvising, because you can't totally brush off their ridiculous complaints and demands because you work for them and that's how you make your money. But at the same point, you have to be the voice of reason. And it's a very tough thing to, to balance, I think. And it, it does a good job of showing both sides of that world where like you mm. are going to get fed up eventually but for most of it you're just like swallow your pride and deal with them i like how he yeah. gets fed up once he which is like let me help you a woman <laughs> that's what he <laughs> yeah. you're like come on dude Ooh, yeah. i know i get it it's a different time but jesus christ well the gender politics in this movie are not intentionally not great but uh, yeah, yeah the smell the glove a description of the cover they name. were going for yeah with the man's smell hand the glove, yeah. up to here Sticking it in her face to sniff it. <laughs> we're kidding. We don't mean it. Yeah, we mean it. We don't mean it. Like, they're clearly like trying to be like, no, we're going to keep it for two completely she different sh- reasons. I mean, she shouldn't be forced to smell. I mean, she should, but not over and over. But not <laughs> over and over, right. Yeah, That's where we draw the line. Not repeatedly. <laughs> not great. But it's clearly fun. they were trying to make a point about rock music at that point in time and, and how it related to gender. Definitely. And it would only get worse as the 80s went on when you got bands like Motley Crue and Poison. Like they weren't really a thing yet when right. this movie was filmed. And then the later 80s, they come out and it goes completely off the rails. Yeah, the excesses are more upset. They're, now they're just like, the 80s were a wild time. Now it's a different person. And you're like, nah, right. you're still the same guy. Like, yeah. I think you're the same. You definitely did all that stuff. You so still you wrote about it in your like- memoir. Just last year. So <laughs> yeah, you exactly. remember it. You couldn't have been that fucked up. Mm, you tell me you're not the same guy. You did Rock of Love. Two seasons of it. Oh, boy. Who was that? <laughs> Brett Michaels, Michaels, right? Yeah. I have not read his memoir. I'm sure he has one. But I did read probably. The Dirt by Motley Crue. And Just give me the dirt. Terrible people. Yeah, they're awful. All of yeah, them. not good dudes. Then there's Nigel's guitar and amp collection. Just <laughs> another great scene. Just, of- yeah. 
Rockstar excess. Legendary lines coming out of that scene. The, the best scenes of the movie to me involve Marty talking to them. Yeah. Because he's trying to like tell them ridiculous things in a very earnest way. And they just say more ridiculous shit at him. Like the, the shit sandwich thing. Right. Is the best. Because just like their reaction, the way he says, he's like, it's a two word review. It's, it just says shit sandwich. And then and like he tries to go past it to keep going. Uh-huh. But they stop him. They're like, wait, whoa, whoa. Man, they can't no, print wait, that. You can't print, you can't print that. That's so like they break. And it's the funniest shit in the world. And the other one is during the Guitar and Amp collection thing. And is that the part where he's playing the piano for him? That's later. That's a separate That's later. later. That has the best smash cut. If somebody told me, hey, how would you describe good movie comedy? Like it even gives you a break to breathe during the transition to the next scene. A break to like laugh and then get to the next bit. Yeah, the editing is really good. And they talk about in the DVD commentary that there was an editor obviously on the film, but like all four of them, the creators also had a hand in the editing and worked on it because it's so tight. Every scene gets out. It gets out so aggressively, like early, like sometimes they have a a real like great punchline to get out on. I mean, Mm -hmm. they always find some punchline to get out on, but they just do it. Scenes come in and out so hard and, and fast. Is really like smart. When they're talking about their drummers and then it's just like quick little insert of like the guy blowing up right. and then back to them like truly unfortunate. What the <laughs> fuck was that? Just cut to the guy actually <laughs> blowing up. Which brings me to the bit I wanted to mention. Okay. So, you know, they're like, yeah, he just kind of internally combusted. And it's like, what? Like he just spontaneously like blew up. I think that's a joke that people took for face value. We're like, what a fun bit. I think Spinal Tap's blowing up their drummers by accident. Oh. oh, you think this is like a... Consider a the amount... There. I figured this out the last time I watched it, the very last scene. I've seen this movie over 10 times. Like, that's how often I watch it. And it uh-huh. just took me till now to figure this out. Because during the last scene where they're all reuniting and they're touring in Japan, Pyro goes off and it's coming out of the drum set. Oh. Like, like it's like a plume of smoke. And I'm just like, I think they've been blowing up their drummers by accident. That did kind of happen to James Hetfield like a few years after this movie came out. Exactly, right? Like, they and my fire lit him on, lit him up. It's fucking bonkers. But yeah, in my head, I'm like, is that a joke we just for decades didn't understand? And it's like, no, I think they're blowing them up, but no one's paying attention. Maybe the drummer finally asked for like an equal share of the profits. And they were like, yeah, no. the drummer came in and says, guys, I have an idea for a song. And then they promptly died. Also, the Rick amount of fine. burns to this band in the movie is insane. They just constantly get torn down a peg. Yeah. It's a sitting in the where are they now section of the. You just hear fuck you off camera and cut to the next thing. Yeah. Harry Shearer is that DJ too. Did you recognize his voice? I did only because he so prominently plays a DJ in Wayne's World too. I knew his like DJ Uh, voice very well. Upcoming episode, by the way. Oh. Record that soon. Wayne's World 2. Wayne's World 2. Not a big hit? No, but I prefer it to the original. I'm a weird really? Same. That, no, because you're, you're correct. Yes. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> Ian is undecided right now. I don't think he's seen either of them recently enough to- no. well, well, speaking of radios, bad transition, we got to talk about the infamous bit about 11. <laughs> we can't skip over the these go to 11 bit. Yeah, that's the all-time- most well-known Spinal Tap bit and maybe one of the best known just comedy bits. Like I think it was Rob Reiner who told the story of like, he was at a party for Tesla's release and like Elon Musk was there, actual supervillain Elon Musk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, he was just like, hey, I'm a big fan. Can I come show you something in the car? He's like, yeah, sure. And he goes over and Elon Musk made all the knobs go to eleven. Jeez. Of course he did. <laughs> That's such a fucking bit. And the cut in that joke is so good too, just because it's, it's why don't you just pause. make everything yeah. <laughs> worth more? It just looks at him. He's good at 11. And then it just cuts away. Long pause between Marty's question and (laughs) Nigel's just 
repeating. These go to 11. Like these go to 11. that's the most simple idea in the world. And why can't you understand? It's a uh, classic. And actually a little trivia bit I uncovered doing research is the movie's IMDb ranking is actually out of 11. Uh, <laughs> oh yes. That's a fun little thing they did. I feel like that makes it seem like it has a worse score though, right? Because it's like a 7.9 out of 11. Oh yeah. That's as opposed to a 7.9 <laughs> out of 10. Like that's lower. That's bad. That's, that's not no bueno. Yeah. But the 11 bit, like I said, even if you've never seen this movie or even you heard know about of, going to turn your shit up to 11, y'all. Yeah. It's just, it's so well known. Yeah. That's become such mainstream cultural currency that like, if you're a fan of the movie, you can't even actually like that. I mean, yeah, it's still somebody's hilarious. Like, you seen Spinal Tap turn to 11? Yeah. That one. Yeah. You're like bummed out. You're yeah, like, no, no, we don't put that joke. There's other we, bits. You got to be a little bit of a Spinal Tap hipster about that bit. You can't. Oh, yeah, a hundred percent. Okay, you're like, you know. that's not even the best joke. I mean, it's not, but it, it is a good joke. It yeah. Is good. I, I had that feeling remembering that era when I first got into this movie with my friends of going down the line from the big jokes quoting those to each other and then reaching deeper and deeper for other things to quote to each other. It's, a, it's like a whole experience that you get to go through. All right. You want to move on to the middle of the movie? So what else <laughs> happens in the this first, thing? Yeah. First the first act. act. There's a lot of good stuff. So David's girlfriend Janine arrives and so do copies of Smell the Glove with a redesigned all black cover. Both get a mixed reception. Tensions rise within the band after a disappointing in-store record signing appearance where no fans show up. Nigel has an idea for how to spruce up their live act, and the band's manager, Ian, runs with it, but it ends up in an embarrassing failure. David suggests they let Janine co-manage the band, and Ian is so offended he quits. So very yeah. uh, big stuff going on in this section for the story. Uh, this is when the movie actually ramps up the drama a little bit. I would say this is where it gets less silly. Yeah. And like I think like this a, is where the tragedy part, where a lot of musicians see. See the, the glimpses of themselves. Right. Because shit like this does happen. Yeah. And like there's still bits. Don't get me wrong, but there's such a like a tone of melancholy through the rest of the movie up until the end. Yeah, I think you're right on with that. The the record signing scene is got oh, a bunch of funny moments. It's got Paul Schaefer doing a totally nutty Paul Schaefer mm -hmm. guy. But in the middle of it, just the scene of them sitting there and Derek Smalls is just incessantly blowing his nose and the rest of them are sitting there looking out at the empty store. It's pretty dark. It's, it's fucking, yeah. it's a bummer. It's, dude. it's like, it's my fault. Kick me in the ass. And you're like, bro, that part isn't even funny to me. I'm like, that's just sad. That's I'm not a bummer. asking. I'm telling with this, this ass <laughs> yeah. for a man. It is, it is. This is like the, it follows a real story structure. As silly as this movie is, we have to have the ups and downs. And particularly with the Stonehenge thing, apparently Aerosmith <laughs> took particular insult from this. Now, this movie was filmed before their album came out, but their album that came out around this time, Stonehenge was on the cover oh, and yeah. Aerosmith was going through like a very, a down period in their career. They lost Joe Perry. Uh, their longtime guitarist had left the band and they were playing smaller and smaller venues and they oh really uh, rock in a hard place is the album. If you want to look up the cover, maybe <laughs> we'll put it in the episode notes. So Steven Tyler saw this and he was apparently like furious <laughs> because it That's pretty funny. accurately lampooned kind of where Aerosmith was at in their career at this point so the same tone of melancholy that's in the second half of this movie is the same one i felt have you guys ever seen anvil the story of anvil yes i feel like that's the closest thing we're ever going to get to like a real Just spinal get, tap. like legitimately i'm like this is actually spinal tap and it's the most heartbreaking shit in the world yeah, because they've been at it for so long. And they're movie. just going through it. And it's literally the same trajectory of like first few gigs. Great. 
Okay, that's good. The gigs are getting worse. Gigs are getting canceled. Okay, still it's fine. Oh, the guitarist is dating the lady. Right. The lady's now the manager. Shit, oh really? no! Like it's literally following the trajectory. And that scene in Anvil where they're about to break up, I saw that like when I was sixteen, and I was like, I went back to being eleven year old Angel watching Spinal Tap the first time. And when when Spinal Tap kind of breaks up, it's just like holy shit like that's insane and like anvil the story of anvil is also a movie that just tears at my heartstrings because the whole thing you're like please somebody give them a break for fuck's sake right but they're still at it i'm just checking now they've released five albums this decade or in the 2010s wow. five albums yeah they release an album every two years like whether anybody wants it or not so good for them man they're yeah, still going really. now that's ian insane. have you ever seen anvil the story of anvil no, I've heard about it, but I've never watched it. You should so, watch it. Yeah, check know. it out. It's, it sounds like a bummer now. It's a little bit of a bummer, but it's still worthwhile. <laughs> when you see, get to the ending, you're going to be like, there's no way they planned it this way. Because the parallels to the Spinal Tap movie are, it's almost like, is this just like a weird meta movie? Like, I had to Google, like, is Anvil an actual band? Yeah, because so many people got fooled by Spinal Tap in the 80s yeah. when it came out. And I was like, holy fuck, they were a real band. What They've the been f- around for so long. Bands like Metallica and Anthrax consider them influences. Okay. Yeah, and they're like Anvil, the greatest goddamn band yeah. of all time. If it weren't for Great. them, there'd be no Metallica. And you're like, I guess the same way you call those comedians comedians they're like a metal band's metal band i mean they don't have yeah. a big following but they're they're like the scene. pixies without the success right um we got to talk about stonehenge i know we mentioned it talking about the aerosmith kind of parallels there but mm-hmm. the stonehenge bit is just probably the second most famous joke from the movie right i you would say so yeah that? yeah it's the moment of like fun talking about the great construction and editing of this movie that like yeah as it starts to get heavy the heaviest moment like stonehenge the aftermath of Stonehenge has this heavy shit. Well, it wasn't that enough. heavy. It was very light because it was so small. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make, making it heavy would have been a good thing. I don't think um, the band was down. I think it was <laughs> the fact that the set was in jeopardy of being crushed by dwarves. And I, love, I, I just loved Eric Small's like, but wait, are we playing Stonehenge? It's so funny because like they just had this fight. He's like, uh, quick matter business. So does this mean we're not doing Stonehenge? It's like, no. I wish, <laughs> I wish Harry Shear got more to do in the movie, to be honest. I feel like he gets... He's third build for sure, Yeah, he doesn't get a lot of like the big laugh out loud jokes. He just no, play. but he does get like the uh, Steen ceiling ones. Yeah, he like doesn't get a lot pod of The scene, like that's such physical comedy. Yeah. yeah. The but pod, it's so good. He gets the pod part. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, that I was great. He finally gets out. The show's over. Fuck! He tries to get back in. No, it's, uh, so we're not playing Stonehenge. It's the fucking cucumber and aluminum. It's the pod scene, right? Saucy Jack. Saucy Jack. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Jack. right. Saucy Jack. Saucy Jack. They I'm must like, have I'm just like, thought of that shit on the spot, too. Bro. <laughs> yeah, I would go, go see the Saucy Jack musical. As somebody who watches a lot of improv, has trained a little bit in it, I'm like, there's a couple parts where you could be like, ah, they just went along with it. Right. There's a few parts you can catch where you're like, they didn't know that was going to happen at all. Like, obviously, the whole thing's improvised, and they're like, with it. But there's a few, like, the Saucy Jack party's like, Saucy Jack? Jack. And, like, he smiles. He's like, ah, that's fucking good, you fucking (laughs) asshole. Well, McKean and Guest had been working together for 17 years at this point on and off. So I'm sure they had, like, a shorthand as far as jokes. There's, there's like, a 20-minute interview they did for GMA. And you just hear them riff the whole time with each other. And you're like, to be in a room with them for one night, just listen to them go on bits the whole time. This is incredible. The guest is an interesting dude, too, because he's like, he's not a jovial guy. He, he doesn't seem to enjoy comedy unless he's performing it in the moment. He said many times, like, I'm not funny in my personal life. I don't make jokes. I don't mm-hmm. like when people expect me to be funny. It's my job. He doesn't seem like that kind of like fun loving guy that you would expect. He's what I think Bill Murray is. Yeah, where little- they're so good at it, but they find no joy in it. 
but they're good at it. So they do it. It's the yeah. gift they were given and they have it's to. It's like, uh, what's the guy who played Agent Smith? Oh, you mean uh, Hugo Weaving? Yeah. In no, The Matrix? In the Matrix. Or the sh- Is it Hugo Weaving? Yeah, it's Hugo yeah. Weaving. Elrond. That's him. Google now. As we call him. He Angel voiced, does not trust um, me. At the last Homely House. It seems that anytime somebody asks him about any movies ever made, he's just like, yeah, that was garbage. I hated it. Like you know, that's, that's true. And I'm like, <laughs> there's people in Hollywood, and I think Chris Guest is one of them, where they don't actually, they enjoy the money and sponsor right. some of the fame, but the performing and the rest of, they're not in it for the art. Sam Neill is another one I would say. It's kind of along those same lines. He's Sam never Neill? like, yeah, from Jurassic Park yeah, and yeah, yeah. Event Horizon. Like, he never has a good thing to say about his movies. <laughs> he did the movies that made us. And the whole time he's talking, you're like, I think this guy is having a laugh. And I was like, you are the most disinterested man I've ever seen. Well, he's got like a winery. Those things are expensive to run. He's got to keep acting to pay for his winery. I mean, essentially, right? Harry Shearer, like he seems like the jokester of the group, but he plays. He plays a straight man. <laughs> Derek Small is so straight, but he's kind of dim. So there's a lot of jokes at his expense, I feel like. I know. It blows my mind that I like, I was like, that's Homer Simpson next to the brother who's allergic to electricity from Better Call Saul oh, Chuck. in the same oh, movie. Right. And they're both playing British dudes. Wait, wait. Talking about their cocks all day. Homer Simpson is Dan Castellaneta, isn't it? Harry Shearer oh. is like seven other famous Simpsons characters. Did I mix up my guys? I know Harry Shearer is very involved in The Simpsons, but I've never been a huge Simpsons guy. I'm so. not. I'm, guy. A, I'm such not. a big Simpsons person. I still watch the new episodes. He's, he is Ned. He's Flanders. He's Burns. He's Flanders. He's, oh, wow. He's, he was he's Dr. Dr. Hibbert for the longest. Principal Skinner. That's the voice. Oh, yeah. Skinner. Sure. Love yeah, Joy the that. same. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still well, I'm doing it. That's okay. I mean. He's played more roles on The Simpsons probably than anybody. It's a good yeah, life, honestly. man. Honestly. Good for him. Yeah. But yeah, his, for a guy who then became famous with all that voiceover, his physical comedy, like just his look, the, the big chops, the big mustache, and the leather he, suspenders. He is also the newscaster guy from Godzilla. I forgot about that. Yep. That oh, is from wow. the Godzilla. Roland Emmerich Godzilla. <laughs> He's the guy who justifies the name Godzilla in the movie for Roland Emmerich. He's like, Godzilla. That's the name of the creature, blah, blah, blah. And then the lady goes like, it's go jira you asshole and then he, she walks away i'm like that was for like the 10 people in the theater they're like yeah right you go jira that's me and ian we're two of those 10 people yeah you but, just see like three things and popcorn go up and it's like you two in the front and me in the back like ah that was for me i feel so i do love the scene where he's playing two identical like he's playing a double bass but it's just two four string basses mm-hmm. that are identical why would oh, you yeah. need two of those that's <laughs> like, a thing but that know? exists though that song is the epitome. That song is all bass, no trouble. Because they're all playing basses. They're all yeah. playing the bass on it on Big Bottom. Yes. Yeah. And I listened yeah. to the soundtrack today, too. And I was Such like, a yeah, good soundtrack, really too. Does. I mean, even like the up. parody songs they do, like the Flower People song, mm-hmm. like they put the work in on those. They sound oh, accurate. Yeah, yeah really. So. And just the look of that. This was a pretty low budget film. They did a lot of things on the cheap, right? Like they didn't leave L.A. They had L.A. stand in for 10 different cities. Like, they really did. Just how stylish, whatever that TV show appearance they do for Listen to the flower people and the costumes and the old video it looks like a proper look. show yeah all right we yeah. got its favorite song in the movie everyone say yours so we can get it out of the way i gotta go sex farm you know what i'm gonna go to i'm gonna go stonehenge it's a really stonehenge. good song stonehenge, oh very nice yeah, I think Stonehenge. Oh, go ahead, Ian. I think rock and roll creation always kind of did it for me. Although that's just tonight we're going to rock you tonight is also right there. <laughs> the yeah. title makes me laugh tonight. We're going to rock you tonight. Actually, um, my favorite song and I'm thinking about is Lick My Love Pump. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. a nice song. The piano ballad. Love it's all in the sad. It's really chord. a part of trilogy. It's funny because. When you rewatch it, you realize he's singing Lick My Love Pump as he's going through it. He's like, bling, bling. <laughs> he's like, wow, that's beautiful. What is that called? Lick My Love Pump. Cut to the next scene. And I'm like, yeah, God damn it. They're so good at that. 
But the Stonehenge scene with the goofy costumes and the druids and all, that's what really reminded me of Song Remains the Same. Have you guys watched Song Remains the Same ever or recently? It's was a long time ago. I do remember it goes from being a concert movie to being a fantasy in the forest with elves. Yeah, there's yeah. Well, the each, thing. yeah, and each band member has their own vignette they do interspersed with the concert footage and they're I, all so f- fucking goofy. Oh, right, there's a gangster one too, right? Where they're Tommy, That was John Bonham's, yeah, who's the gangster. Tommy Guns and Pinstripes. So I saw this once, I think I was like 18. I was in college, I was trying to like be like, outside of Immigrant Song? Not much, uh, not doing much for you? They, I don't get it. They've got some songs I I like. Don't get me wrong. Like, I understand how important they are. So I'm just like, I get it in the sense of like, I see how this influenced the whole world, but it's just, it's not for me. Yeah. So much of it was just kind of ripped off blue standards and like added distortion. Yeah, that too. And also I'm just, and also it's the classic white people stealing from black artists thing. Yeah. That's half of rock and roll music is that. I get that it doesn't click for a lot of people, but for me, it's still just like, they were really good. I mean, you saw them live in 1973 right that's yeah you, you were 42 <laughs> i was there at the enormo dome or whatever they call it yeah we're gonna, get, we're gonna get a thing angel's feet has been lost i don't know what happened but we can't hear him anymore lost? no i'm just kidding oh, uh, he's gonna cut you out he's like, gone also he told us to not plug his show all right <laughs> but my mom was a big led zeppelin fan so i bought song remains the same on blu-ray and we tried to watch it one time and after like 10 minutes she was like this is so fucking goofy and i was yeah. like yeah, yeah let's turn it off <laughs> like it's just so cheesy it's definitely one of those projects where you're like man they just let him do anything just right. let him but it made money. Yes. All right, Ian, you want to walk us through the end of the movie? All right. So the tour continues with Janine now in charge, but Nigel is not happy, and it all comes out in a blow-up argument with David. Then after a technical disaster at a humiliating gig, Nigel walks off stage and leaves the band. The band continues on without him, but they're at a genuine low point. On the night of their final U.S. show, Nigel shows up backstage with news that album is a surprise hit in Japan. David invites Nigel to reunite live on stage, and before you know it, the band finds new glory in front of adoring Japanese crowds. Ian, I need you to specify what song was a big hit in Japan, not just the album. Oh yeah, Sex Farm. It was Sex Farm. Mm. Spinal Tap's recording of Sex Farm, right? Yeah, yeah Spinal Tap's on a Sex Farm. It's great. They take Which is funny because that's the same song they're playing where he quits the band. They're playing that at the Air Force gig. That's right. right. At the Air Force gig. When Fred Willard asked them. I guess my hair's getting a little shaggy as well. Also, Fred Willard Young looks like regular Fred Willard. Right. He, he never changed except oh, his yeah. I was like, you've like, always been 48. Oh, we miss Fred Willard. He was wonderful in this. This is where this was formative for me. Rest in power, buddy. Yeah. I mean, he's just such a comedy standby to see him in a movie from 1984. It doesn't even feel out of place. No, it really then, doesn't. You know, to see him in all these movies that were semi-recent. You're like, yeah, he, the man was just killing it for like 40 years. An yeah. actual time traveler. I love the smash cut from Can You Play Some Slow Songs to Sex for- Yeah. Yeah, another great smash cut. <laughs> so good. Sex so Ian, farm is- do you think you will watch Anvil or can I spoil the movie for you? Oh, I don't know. I, I guess you could spoil it. I could unplug my headphones for a second here. Okay, You're going to so edit the episode. <laughs> you are going to edit the episode, my guy. I get um, sloppy for five minutes. So you should watch because the parallels, the dichotomy is this fucking guy. Tell the parallels. I, I like how I'm like talking shit about myself like I'm some other person. Um, you this fucking guy? <laughs> you this fucking guy? Anyway, the parallels between Spinal Tap and the real story of Anvil is insane. And they're a hidden Japan thing also rings true for Anvil. Hmm. They're about to break up. They're like, I guess this is the last one. And then it almost looks staged where he's just kind of hanging out and he gets a phone call. For real? Yeah, we'll be there. Absolutely. And like they get a phone call and they're like, they want us to do a tour of Japan. And they go to Japan and they play a giant hall and everybody's singing along to their songs. 
And then the band yes. is still kicking to this day. Like after that movie came out, I know they opened for Metallica for like a year. Yeah. And that let them tour as headliners for a bit too. God, that's probably the most money they've ever seen opening for Metallica. That's I a think very they made more money deal, opening sure. for Metallica than they did on their own headline tours, to be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. But like Metallica is really good at getting good opening acts. And like, I remember wanting to go see bands that opened for Anvil. And I was like, oh, oh, an anvil's going to be there? That's cool. I mean, I want to see these other people, but that's neat. I didn't end up going, but I was like, I almost went to an anvil show. I would kind of want to catch an anvil show now if they start touring again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, God, the movie's so freaking good. And just like the the obviously newly bought Japanese flag that just got unfolded and then put on the wall to be like, oh, yeah, it's like totally Japan. creased. Yeah, yeah it's like super <laughs> creased. Japan. I just I thought that was really funny. Like this flag, it doesn't even have the smell of the bag off of it yet. And they're like, yeah, right. we're in Japan. And they cut to the same flag using the same shot, just mirrored multiple times. <laughs> hey, man, that's low budget filming. Making. It's, yeah. f- it's fucking great. They delivered where it counted and they cut some corners otherwise. But yeah, yeah. it's a cute dig at just something about Japanese metal fans. Like they, like you said, they, they literally brought love to a whole bunch of artists that maybe couldn't make it anywhere else. So it's another part where like this really mirrors reality beautifully and hits home for anyone who's a music fan goes like, of course they made it. They're yeah, and it's terrible as like we've seen them be and like as shitty as they are to each other and, and to other people. We're still like, you kind of cheer at the end of the movie when they get another chance and, and they're going to go back out on the road mm-hmm. and it's not all ending acrimoniously. It gets real emotion out of you for such a silly kind of dumb movie in a lot of ways. That thin line between dumb and clever that it walks. Yeah. And I think that's why it affected so many musicians. I think there's an interview with Dave Mustaine. Where he's like, I remember watching that movie being pissed off. I was like, hey, that shit happened to me. Dave Mustaine's always pissed off about something. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like, he was just like, I saw Spinal Tap and he was like, oh, fuck. This is what happened to me. Literally. Like, yeah. There's like, I mean, you hit it big for a while. And then, like, every band goes through this moment of ups and flows. And unless you're a gigantic band, you're not going to notice it. Mind you, a gigantic band's low point is still selling a 10,000 seat arena instead of a stadium right, right? because i yeah, remember like metallica acdc they're like i guess we'll just do the basketball stadium instead of the football one and you're like that's still they're still charging the same amount of money you're still, still so be, much still so much speaking of venues puppet show and spinal tap was like their ultimate low point there yeah. when you're playing at the amusement park <laughs> which is actually where i would go that was magic mountain out in valencia california oh wow. i've seen shit in that little amphitheater a bunch of times yeah. what's the craziest there? shit you saw there Chinese acrobats, something like that. Like that's what they the would have. The Shenyun thing? Yeah, they wouldn't book rock and roll bands there. They would just do like- Like actual park puppet shows. Entertainment. <laughs> yeah, actual puppet shows and shit. But it was cool to see a place that I knew as a kid. Like, oh, I've been there. And they're playing yeah. in that little bowl. You're like, I built that place brick by brick. Huh? <laughs> he and his old jokes are just racking up today. <laughs> Sorry, but the moment I see someone slightly older than me, I'm like, and we're going in. We're going in hard. Sorry, but That's all right. I could take it. All right. Well, in that case, <laughs> over those years, I've built up a thick skin. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, beat me. I was going to make the same fucking joke. So, oh, yes. Is there anything else about the last section of the movie you wanted to talk about? I mean, no, I, I think that's it. <laughs> It's such like we, we've been jumping all over the place with this movie, so like, it's hard to remember. I think we, we talked about a lot of the third acts. I mean, first. yeah, we did. We jumped all around because you get excited for one bit and you're like, oh, remember this other bit? Yeah. And the movie itself is not plot heavy, so it's not like you have to worry the about. The second half of the movie definitely has that melancholic tone because there's that weight of them like not being happy and going through it. And then at the end, when they're at their lowest, you're like, fuck, they're not going to do it. You're genuinely sad. And then one of the few faults in the film, I think, is you don't leave it being like they're gonna be okay you're gonna be like fuck are they gonna go through that again right yeah they didn't learn any lessons you're catching a band at the tail end of their popularity 
I think that's by design. Like, yeah, the movie makes a concerted effort to kind of leave leave you there. Yeah. Right. It just, it ends on a low note. It doesn't want to pick them up too high, yeah, but so, it's yeah. just a little glimmer of hope. And I think it's trying to show that they will latch onto anything to kind of keep going, even if it's the smallest little mm-hmm. glimmer. Of- yeah. They didn't learn from their mistakes and earn their way out of their bad situation. They were just rewarded for being stupid. Like they just found someone who would buy their same dumb music that they've been making. They're great music that they've been making. Yeah. So good. <laughs> so some interesting behind the scenes stuff with this movie, the band and Reiner only apparently received $179 for sales of merchandise and music since the film's release uh, as of 2016 yeah there's like a whole legal thing yeah sheer filed a 175 million dollar lawsuit and then the rest of the guys joined in it was settled in september 2020 for i think an undisclosed amount i don't think we could find out what it was for but i'm sure it's like a few like i'm sure it's a few mil yeah hopefully Uh i'm sure it's like hey man either give us a lot of money or change these rights up and they're like we'd rather just give you money right and like all of them are millionaires so they're all like yeah i'll take i'll take I mean, Harry Shear being on The Simpsons, playing that many roles for that many years, he's got restructuring be, his contract every few years in a mass yeah. protest to he's everybody make settled, millions. Settled well for life, yeah. thousand percent. Uh, in two thousand two, the Library of Congress deemed the movie culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Oh, now- in that interview I mentioned, they were like, "Or they're all like, or." That's where they got us. Or. Uh, oh, sorry, wait, which, I, wait, which interview? They did an interview, I think, for like Good Morning America, like the 40th anniversary. And it's like 20 minutes of them riffing. And like the guy will like pop in and he's like, so you guys are in the Library of Congress. And then they named the same thing you just said. Right. Uh, Culturally, right. historically, or aesthetically significant. <laughs> and then they go, or. Uh, they're like, ah, that's where they got us. Well, what do you mean? He's like, or. It's not all three. It's one right. of the three. The question is which one? I would argue it's all three. I would. De- actually, I would argue it's culturally. That's fair. If I had to pick one. Because yeah. aesthetics, one. not great. I mean, it looks like a documentary from the 80s, which is the best you can say. Like, I, it's accurate. When I period. saw it, I thought it was a documentary from yeah. the 70s. All right. It's the early 80s. And like I was just like, this looks like duck shit. <laughs> it does. Yeah. Low budget sets you back mm-hmm. 10 years. Yeah. It's not going to win any awards for cinematography. It's pretty, pretty bare bones, but it gets across what it wants to. That is true. That is true. So why do you think the movie failed to find an audience in theaters? We like to have the final roundup. It was released in a strange way. It kind of trickled out into theaters over several months, right, Ian? Yeah, it looks like, and not that I'm the greatest researcher of movie material, but I couldn't find anything that really described how they rolled it out. But you can see on the box office sites that it opened in three theaters and then the yeah, next week it was, it was very... five and then it went to nine. Like this was a full on like indie movie release where they're like, hey, we got some art houses to play our movie. And if we can build up some interest, maybe it'll go wide. And it eventually went wide, but it was in the theaters for a long time. It was in the theaters until Memorial Day and it made most of its money at the end of its run because it didn't get wide release right. yeah. for like two months after it came out. So it was like not destined to be like a lot of the movies we cover are big studio releases. And it's like, oh, yeah, they went head to head with Harry Potter on their opening weekend and they got crushed. This movie wasn't going head to head with anybody on its opening weekend because it was in two art houses in L.A. and in Manhattan. So I think it speaks to the movie's quality that it kept picking up viewers and and getting rolled out to more and more theaters but it's still it never picked up enough steam to really be like a big box office smash but it, to me it does seem like in the end it seems like a success story because starting that small it could have gotten 
smashed off the face of the earth, right? It could have, nobody could have taken a chance on it. It's the fact that it even made four and a half million dollars. Like that's actually, I mean, obviously we love it so much. We'd love to have seen it make 400 million, but I think they did okay. And certainly like they milked it, as we said, every couple of years they came out with. Yeah. And like, I think they got more success in doing music than they did out of the fucking movie. Yeah. They've played like huge festival crowds as Spinal Tap. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think the more important they won at the end of the day. Yeah. The cultural impact is way bigger than the movie itself. Yes. Just gigantic. Very, absolutely agree. I mean, yeah. they were on an episode of The Simpsons. Yeah. I knew about Spinal <laughs> Tap from The Simpsons before I knew the movie. Like, yeah. I had to rewatch that episode of The Simpsons and be like, holy shit, that's Spinal Tap. Okay. I think that might have been where I first discovered them, too. And I wasn't a big Simpsons person, but, you know, it was always on in my house. I had older brothers that watched it um, a lot. So it's just <laughs> so good. But yeah, I mean, geez, it's such a great film. I don't even know like where to go to. Like, I can't sing its praises. Like, yeah, yeah, anymore. It's so good. Yeah, watch the goddamn movie. It's <laughs> definitely it. gotten its due over the years. Um, I happily paid. By the way, you can't rent the movie. You have to buy it. And I happily paid my twelve dollars to to have it. And now I just own it. And I'm like, this was a good choice. Yeah, I yeah. hope the guys get some of that, and they don't have to sue. I mean, uh, what other what movies again? came out against it at the? Oh well, you see, it's the thing. It's hard to it's hard to really determine the 80, when the movie right because of the weird like indie release. Yeah, yeah. I looked at it at the time when it got to wide release, which was, yeah, toward the end of April, beginning of May, I think it was head-to-head with Police Academy and Romancing the Stone, at least in the comedy category. Oh, Temple of, D- Temple of Doom came in May. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> prob- yeah. That probably blew it away. Yeah, I think it's that def- like it the Lampoon from Harvard. People watched it, but not like the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> oh, speaking of a very underrated line in that movie is also they're like, oh, the show in Boston's canceled. What? They're like, yeah, it, it's fine. It's not a great college town. <laughs> Yeah, classic. <laughs> yes, I missed. Like, it's such a subtle little line that you wouldn't. I'm telling you, these throwaway so jokes that like just come at you so hard. It's such a good line. Yeah, Boston, so like good. the most saturated college, town the most aggressively college town ever. Yeah, I think that about brings us to the the end of our show. Right, Ian? Is there anything else you wanted to to chime in with? I would just like to say, I think we kind of brought it up before, but the thing for me that puts this movie over the top is we talked about the jokes. It's so dense with jokes. It's so wall to wall. But like we were saying, it actually has genuine heart too. And that just elevates it to this other level because it didn't need to. The characters could have been paper thin and just dumb the whole time. And hitting these jokes, you would have still loved the movie. But they had this other level. And that's the thing that like the Apatows and the people that came in the generations after were trying to like, how did they do this? They made it so funny and they still grounded it with heart. And it touches these deep themes, friendship between guys who were buddies since they were little kids and how does that survive middle age? And like, you're finding out that your glory days are behind you. And how do you deal with life when it starts to shrink on you? It like touches on all this really fun stuff, like really deep stuff for a dumb mockumentary. Yeah, it didn't have to do all that. I'm not gonna lie. Every episode at the end, I get excited for the big Ian wrap up of the movie. (laughs) And I saw it live and I was just like, chills. Like it's so exciting to be see it live. I'm like, oh, my favorite part of the show is happening. (laughs) Crushes it every time. Sweet of you to say that. No, that's awesome. This movie's dumb. I don't like it. (laughs) What I learned about life from this movie is, (laughs) yeah, it's like the ending of every South Park episode. It was like, well, guys, and then like some deep lesson was gonna come out of whatever. Like even the Lady of the Water episodes. Like you just gotta recognize your hubris. And I'm like, fuck, he's right, man. He's right. (laughs) Angel, thank you for joining us. Plug your stuff. Thank you for having me so much, guys. Uh, yeah. You can follow me on the Instagram and the Twitters at Gorilla Jokes, G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A Jokes. Hey, hey, you there, you there. You should listen to my podcast that I co-host with the wonderful Nash Flynn. It's called Death and Friends. Yo, 
join the skeleton army and we have a good time it's a cute little short podcast where we talk about everybody's least favorite destination death and we talk about the history of death and big events and how it shaped human history and the works so great we love it death and friends rules i can vouch for that great pod definitely check it out please do and uh, that will wrap us up for this week thank you guys so much for listening please remember rate review subscribe or follow the podcast on whatever platform you prefer follow us on twitter at blast zone pod email us if you have any suggestions questions we're blast zone pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next week in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone see you next time in the blast zone the blast zone